0: Again, it's a privilege to be with you tonight, and it's also a privilege to have been invited to deliver God's words. So let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah chapter 20 is page 694 in the Bibles there in your pews. One of the shorter chapters of this fairly long book but uh, Isaiah chapter 20, we'll read the whole chapter, It's page 694. This is God's word. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amoz. He said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years, as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared to Egypt's shame." Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who live on this coast will say, See what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? Who is your Assyria? What is the looming threat in your life? Is it death? The long decline that precedes it? The path that your kids are on? Failure to get accepted, to you put in the blank, or promoted? Not finding a spouse. What is your fear? I don't know if your church does this, but many used to begin their services with this question. I I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And the answer, of course, is in Psalm 121, and it says, my help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth question tonight is, can you say that? Is that true for you? When disappointment comes, or cancer, or relationship failure, where do you turn? Who do you look to? For the Israelites, their help was coming from Egypt. Against the menace in the north, Israel held on to hope because of their alliance with the people of the Nile. They hoped Assyria wouldn't mess with them because attacking them was tantamount to attacking Egypt because of their treaty with Egypt. Or if Assyria did attack, then hopefully they'd at least survive and get through it because Egypt was supposed to come to their aid in such an event. Now, it's not like God didn't know that they would have times like this when they were really, truly nervous. Times when their enemy was just going to be way too much for them. An enemy that on paper would have 10 to 1 odds of just obliterating them. But God wanted it that way. And that's the whole reason he set this tiny little tribe of Jacob in the midst of the nations. His purpose wasn't first of all to make their lives comfortable or non-eventful. His purpose was, first of all, to make his own name great. To exalt his name before all the peoples, the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Edomites, and also to have these stories recorded in this book so that peoples like us, far down the road, could still marvel at what God did. But, That kind of policy that God had with his people would often put them in hard situations. My wife and I, as many of you know, just moved from Mexico to Washington State. And as we mentioned in our newsletter, we started looking for houses in Washington, where we're going, months ago. But we were uncertain about two issues, which didn't really help in the process. Number one, we weren't sure where we should live in this elongated place called Seattle. It's kind of like Chicagoland, uh, where in Chicago means anywhere from the Wisconsin border down to Indiana. Um, Seattle's a little bit like that. Seattle, when you say, I live in Seattle, you mean I live south of the Canadian border, and uh, including all the way pretty close to Portland. So somewhere in there is... That's that's all Seattle. So it's really, really long, and if you get stuck in traffic there, you'll even, well, you guys know about traffic, don't you? Okay, well, the second issue that we didn't have resolved, okay, about where to live, number one, but number two, we didn't have resolved whether we should rent or buy. And we, we think, as you, as you know, we think we're going to be there for a few years, maybe four to five, maybe more, but probably at least four to five. So we're like, well, maybe it's time now to try to build some equity and try to buy a home. Well, what we didn't write in our newsletter is that on that six-day journey I had with three other men um, moving from Guadalajara to Seattle, I had a faith test. Lying down to sleep in our friend's home in Las Vegas, I finally just straight out asked God. I said, God, what, what is your will in all this? What do you want? Now sometimes I don't get answers when I ask questions like that. Sometimes I do, and this time I, I felt like I kind of did, and I felt the answer was "don't buy." But that's not the answer I wanted to hear. My head was saying, "Try to buy," you know, equity, that kind of stuff, and so I pretended that his that his answer wasn't really as clear as I really felt it was. When I arrived a few days later to my wife and kids who had already flown and were in Washington, we arranged for the very next day to meet a realtor named Bill. And Bill was a nice guy. And he started to get to work right for us, right away, looking for a house for us to buy. I was doing the ignore God thing at this point. Because I really, like I said, didn't want to hear that. Well, then on Saturday night, a few days later, Angie and I, my wife, we were watching a movie uh, entitled God is Not Dead. Anybody see that film? of you, One of you? More of you should see that film. God is Not Dead. And through the faith stories of that film, the Holy Spirit convicted me and gave me enough courage to tell my wife what I had sensed God saying, namely that we should not try to buy a house. But it was hard for me to say that. We, we had just gone to meet with the realtor. We, we were already living in someone else's house, living out of our suitcases with all three of our kids. Now I'm going to tell my wife that we should stop that process and start searching for what exactly? I, I really didn't know. And then, I, like I mentioned, I think to some of you, or, or maybe all of you in the potluck this morning, the other issue in this that was so daunting was the price. Uh, Seattle's crazy expensive right now. It's, and it's especially expensive in the area that we hope to live where the Iranians are concentrated in Bellevue, Bothell, Kirkland shoreline, the north part of the city. And just a three-bedroom apart, apartment there is $1,800 a month. But we really need a house because we've got garage stuff, two cars, a kayak, a dog, and three kids. So that's going to cost more. Well, the next morning, scared and a little bit ashamed, I I called our realtor and and said to him, "Hold, hold off. And for a week then, I was looking at rentals, but nothing was working out. And then God at last revealed his plan and the reason he had told me back in Las Vegas, don't buy. And he's now put us in the area of the people that we hope to minister to, right in that area. Number two, in a massive, lovely house, and number three, for just, I'm going to tell you the secret, $750 a month. And that includes the utilities. That's like three and a half times less than market, not even factoring in the utility part. It's just a steal. Now, this house is the house of, the, of, of, a, of First Seattle Christian Forum Church, and we praise God for them and their willingness to bless us while they're without a pastor. And so, yes, we went through a faith test. For, for quite a while. And and yes, it was uncomfortable, but God, God, He did exactly what we were saying. That would be impossible. That, that, that just won't happen. He did it. God didn't want his people to make alliances with other nations like Egypt even if there were monsters like Assyria, threatening to wipe them off the map, like a modern-day ISIS in brutality and finality. Even in those circumstances, God wanted his people to look to him. Why not someone else like Egypt? Because God wants to be our help. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Egypt? No. Lord. God wants to be our deliverer. He wants us in that uncomfortable position with no other options, no backup plan, so that he can pull off what what we're saying that's impossible. It won't happen. For him to be able to exhibit again his existence, his character, and his power, so that our prayer request will be answered. That prayer request that we say at the beginning of the prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name, Lord. That name, that prayer, will be answered when we live like this. But Israel was trusting Egypt anyway. And so God sent his prophet to them, to tell them that their faith was misplaced. God sent Isaiah to prophesy the defeat and humiliation of Egypt so that they would know that Egypt cannot be their help. Isaiah must walk around barefoot and naked for three years. Now, did you know Isaiah had to do that? How many people knew that? I, I, that was like, whoa. That was... after It wasn't after three years, and that had to be a little awkward you not... Maybe have the full story until three years later. But anyway, after three years, God gives Isaiah an explanation for what he's been doing to tell all the people what's up. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign important against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, Egypt's shame. Ever think about that word embarrassed before? Anyway, okay. With buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. God is going to defeat the very nation that Israel is counting on. Now, but that's not all. Along with Egypt being roundly rebuked, anyone who has placed their confidence in them is also will be put to shame. So it's not just the Chicago Bulls who are humiliated by a poor season, so are their fans. Anybody smiling or grinning about Okay, good. Now, having lived in Phoenix, I was a sons fan, and I particularly liked Steve Nash and his style of play. I thought it was very exciting. I, 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 I related to him. He's about four months older than me, so hey, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, I like Steve, uh, how he played, but then he had a divorce in his personal life, and he went to Los Angeles, and his play just didn't keep up, so I had to kind of pipe down in my And my fanaticism for for Mr. Nash. Now, like that, God makes his second point. Not just Egypt's pride will be brought low. Verse 5 says, But those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. Now, who's that? That's the Israelites they too will go ashamed with Egypt. Now, what's the good news here is that during these decades of the Assyrian threat against God's people, eventually Israel was actually led by a king who did fear God. His name was Hezekiah, Hezekiah did not look to the Egyptians to be his salvation. And it wouldn't have worked out for him even if he had. Because when the, the text reports later in Isaiah that when the Egyptian Cushite king, Tirhaka, marched out to meet Assyria in battle, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, wasn't intimidated. The Assyrian king at that time then didn't pull back from his forward position from which he was poised to destroy Jerusalem. So it wouldn't have helped anyway. What Hezekiah did in this moment of trial, he turned to God in prayer. And you can turn with me now to chapter 37, if you will. Isaiah, just turn forward a little bit if if you'd like, otherwise you can listen to me. But chapter 37, at verse 16. And this was the king... In Jerusalem, his prayer. I'm just. I'll, we'll read that in just a minute. Hezekiah took this terribly threatening letter from the from the king of Assyria, and he went to the temple, God's temple. He laid it down before God, and he said to God, "God, here it is. It's written, black and white, ink, ink and paper, right here." It's our death sentence. No one can save us, including Tirhaka of Egypt. He can't either. God, we need you. Look at this now. Chapter 37, verse 16. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God... Deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are our God. God's people were afraid for their lives, and this trial was not a pleasant one. But Hezekiah understood that God could use their predicament. God could use their predicament to glorify His name. Is this why in world history God has only allowed two men ever to not experience death? All men, including those who trusted in God, even God's own Son, have died. The saints of this congregation are dying. Why? Of course, because of the curse of sin but also so that God can show himself to be the only one who saves. We can't trust in ourselves for all of our sophistication and even worldly importance. Which one of you can keep himself from dying? It's the ultimate chance for God to show that he is God. Do we mean it when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name. God, show your power, sanctify your name, including in me, in my life, and even in my death. Our trials in life, including the final one, death. All of our tests, are testimonies in the shaping In the formation process, so long as we maintain our faith in Him. Listen to God's answer to Hezekiah through his prophet. Listen to it, I'll I'll read it. Go and tell Hezekiah, because you prayed. Because you looked to me, because you sought me alone in your distress, and you relied and you trusted me, I will save you. And do you know what happened? Do you know this story? Do you guys know this story? This, other than maybe Jesus Christ's resurrection, which we get to celebrate every Easter and we just get to throw up our hands and dance around and just say, praise God, he's conquered death. Other than that, for me, anyway, one of the coolest miracles in all of scripture is this one. What God did at this time. In one night, the angel of the Lord went into the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 warriors of the Assyrian nation. Sennacherib awoke aghast. And he had no choice but to retreat. God had done the impossible. Now only more impressive than the sudden fall of an entire army of hardened warriors is the coming to life of one who was crucified. God saves you and God saves me no less dramatically than he saved his people then. Just like Israel had a radical, game-changing event when God stepped in and saved them, God has done a game-changer for us as well. Defeating death taking away the penalty and condemnation from us for our sin. And because God has saved us, what now should be our response? How should we live as we step out of this building's doors this evening into the warm humidity of Illinois? That humidity that I can just just tell it's making the corn grow right as we speak. Well, friends, in in two words, the answer is do good. This was Paul's exhortation to the, to the, the, the Christians who lived on the island of Crete, that warm island in the Mediterranean off the southern coast of Greece. God's word says, live productive lives be busy not busy bodies but be active for the Lord Paul identified a lack in the church in Crete and it was a lack of good deeds Good deeds have gotten a pretty bad rap since the Reformation. But Paul's not saying good deeds will save anybody. He's saying doing good is an essential piece of any Christian's life. And it must be. And so in his instructions to his agent Titus, whom Paul had left in Crete, Continue the work. Paul said this. Tell the people to get to work and optimize their lives for God's business and God's agenda. See, the game changer for us is Jesus Christ and what God did for us in him. Chapter 2, verse 11, talks about that game-changer in the book of Titus. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That's the game-changer. And now, Paul continues, So because of that, therefore, he urges Titus to tell the the, the people of Crete, those who have come to Christ on the island of Crete, be about what is good. Seven times in this tiny little short letter, Paul urges the the whole church to pursue, to love, to do, and to seek what is good. Elders must be men who love what is good. Chapter 1, verse 8. Older women must teach younger women what is good. Chapter 2, verse 3. Titus must set an example before the younger men of the church by doing what is good, 2, verse 7. Paul says that Jesus gave himself to redeem for himself a people who are eager to do what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14. And so Paul repeats that all must Be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. And in case his protege, Titus, is just a little slow on the uptake, Paul gets toward the end of his letter and spells it out for him in 3, verse 8. He says, and I want you to stress. These things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And if, if Paul needs to say it again, he will. Once more, in his closing personal comments to Titus, Paul again says, Our people. It's kind of like you see him coming alongside Titus at the very end, putting his arm around him and saying, look, Titus, our people, the people in Crete, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. And God makes plain by this story from Isaiah and in the gospel that he is able to deal with the Assyrian armies in our lives. And for us, the greatest of all Sennacheribs is the devil himself and his claim over us because of our sin. But God has defeated him. And if God has provided us the life of his own son for our salvation, how will he not also provide us all things, everything that he has planned for our lives? Of course he will. So therefore, give yourself then not to worrying about what you can't do, which is dealing with that Assyrian army outside your walls. Give yourself not to worrying about those things, but Rather, to the purpose of doing good. Give yourself to that. And be productive until your Lord returns.